This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. It is great, and it is wonderful to see you all here. I want to thank you all for coming out here. Special thank you to my wife for coming. It's not often that I get the pleasure and honor of having her in my audience. So, uh, big thank you to my wife. Yeah, we can give her a round of applause. She deserves many of those. Um, I also want to thank the amazing staff that you showed by the Hudam Partners Detroit for setting up this beautiful Lunch and Learn every week. And I want to thank the amazing staff at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website, and it is filled with incredible amounts, unfathomable amounts of Torah knowledge. Don't trust me. Go on down there. Verify this all for yourself. Check it out. Okay, this week, before we start learning, I want to point out that the learning we do should be a zechus for all the people who are in captivity right now, as well as all the soldiers in the IDF who are fighting to protect our family in Israel. And even if you say, well, someone's, I don't have any family. Well, we all do. In the, in the beginning of the war, I said to somebody, do you have any family in Israel? He says, about, about 7 million cousins. <laughs> so we want to thank all the IDF soldiers, and specifically uh, one of our regulars here, who's not here right now, Gloria Garden, her grandson, Akiva Menachem, Ben Cyril Crandall is there, and also I want to say specifically for some uh, some some friends of mine, we have Daniel Ben Ophira and Yonasan Ben Ophira and Mayor Tzvi Ben Ophira. They should also all have special heavenly protection. I mean, betoch kol shar klal Yisrael amongst all the rest of the Jewish people uh, that are right now in a precarious situation. I want to begin by talking, every, it's, it's amazing how no matter what you're dealing with in life, you open up the weekly Torah portion and it deals with whatever you're going through. It's, it's an uncanny thing. So we have a lot to talk about today, but I want to start specifically with two items that have to do with our current situation and the current war in Eretz Yisrael. For starters, in this week's parsha, we read about the infamous showdown between Yaakov and his brother Esav. Essentially the forces of good and the forces of evil. I saw today, I mean, actually let's, before, before we get any further, let us uh, say, I'm going to say a shahakal, you all say a main with great reverence, um, but let's try to also remember, we spoke about this earlier, let's focus on our shahakals during this war, shahakal niebedvaro, everything happens through his word. So, here we go. I'm going to demonstrate for you. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shehakol Nieh Bidvaro. Amen. Okay. So, I saw, you know, I'm sure you've heard there's been a, there was a horrific attack this morning uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, two people just pulled up to a busy street and got out with, with assault rifles and started shooting. Unfortunately, three people were killed, and there were a, a number more wounded, I think seven wounded or something like that. I mean, it literally happened f- like 500 yards, maybe a cl- less, five, five, about 500 yards from my daughter's seminary. Like, this is, it's, 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 it's so crazy. And, and both these people, by the way, were people who were previously in prison for uh, terrorist types of activities. You know, like, it, it's unbelievable, the, the hatred for the Jewish people, um, they both were eliminated on the spot by the, as they say, the, the terrorists were neutralized. And God willing, Hashem should neutralize every single one of the terrorists in Gaza and all over the world. All over the world. So, and, and I saw someone post something when, when there was a, a post that went out about this terrible attack. Someone posted, the lowly always go after the holy. The lowly always go after the holy. And that's indeed what this week's Torah portion deals with as well. Esav is the low, is the, is the root of evil. And he comes after Yaakov. And the night before they're about to have this epic showdown, in the beginning of the Parsha, Esav is marching on Yaakov with 400 men, according to some, opinion, according to some opinions, 400 leaders of units, of generals, 400, not just regular infantry, 400 leaders with all their soldiers, whatever. He, he was coming to literally massacre the Jewish people. And mind you, even if he only came with 400 men, he was coming against a family of like 50 people, 30 people, with 400 men. There was a clear intent of genocide in his eyes. The night before the showdown was to take place, 
The Torah tells us, by Yivaser Yaakov Levado, and Yaakov, what happened was he had already brought his entire family across this river called the Yabok, and then he went back. He had left behind some important items, which actually are incredibly important when we understand what they were. And by Yivaser Yaakov Levado, and Yaakov stayed back himself, by Yavik Ishimo Adalos Hashachar, and a man struggled with him and fought with him until the coming of the dawn. And of course, the sages tell us this was the Saro Shal Esav, this was the angel of Esau. Vayar Kilo Yacholo, and he saw that he was unable to beat him. Vayiga Bekaf Yerecho, and he struck him in the socket of his hip. Vateka Kaf Yerech Yaakov. Of Koimo, and Yaakov's hip socket was dislocated as he wrestled with him. A few verses later, and he says, and so, actually, before we get to a few verses later, Vayomer, and the angel says, ki Allah shachar, leave, you, you gotta let me go, it's already dawn, and I've got a job to do. Vayomer, <clears throat> I won't let you go until you bless me. Vayomer, and he says, and what's your name? Vayomer, Yaakov, and he said, the angel says to Yaakov, what's your name? He said, Yaakov. Vayomer, lo Yaakov, yeomer ochimcha. Your name is not Yaakov, which comes from the heel. You're not at the bottom. You're not, a, you're not at the heel. Ela Yisrael. Ki im Yisrael. But rather your name shall be Yisrael. Ki sarisa im Elohim ve'im anashim batuchal. For you have struggled with the divine and with man and you've overcome. Now, Yaakov asks him, what's your name? He says, why do you ask my name? And he goes, okay. And Yaakov comes out of that place. And Yaakov called the name of the place For I saw God, or a godly being, face to face, and my life was saved. And the sun came out when he passed over Penuel. And he was limping on his, on his thigh. Therefore, the Jewish people do not eat the Gid Hanasha, which is the displaced sinew, Asher al Kaf which is in the, the hip socket, until this day, because the angel had struck Yaakov in his hip socket and this displaced sinew. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, we don't get the best steaks. <laughs> we do not. There is no such thing as a kosher... Well, actually, <laughs> the Sephardim get the best steaks. I'll explain to you what I mean in a, mo- in a moment. But if you go into Prime 10, you know what they don't serve? A sirloin steak. You know what they don't serve? A T-bone steak. You know what they don't serve? A porterhouse steak. You know what they don't serve? A real filet mignon. <laughs> now they'll have like the filet mignon, right? The F-A-U-X. The, the filet mignon is what they'll serve, which is a medallion out of the rib steak. But all those steaks are not part of the steaks that we eat at all. Now, just to, uh, a caveat. The Gidhat Nasha, this displaced sinew, is actually a very large branching sinew that goes throughout the entire hind quarters of the animal. Ashkenazic Jews, which I'm looking at this crowd and we're, we're mostly of the Ashkenazic persuasion, Ashkenazic Jews do not have the tradition of how to properly remove it. It is a very complicated and very, very, very complicated to move because it, it branches out into many little, much smaller pieces. So we generally, we literally lop off the back half of the animal and we sell it because it's too complicated. Now, the Sephardic Jews still have the tradition of how to return it. And, and I, I believe, I may, be getting, I may be getting this wrong. Um, it may be that we do have the ability, but it's so complicated and so complex that it's almost impossible for us. But either way... Ashkenazic Jews lop off the back half, like from the haunch, the back haunches and down, and we sell it. The Sephardic Jews, they actually still maintain their form of removing the Gid Hanasha, and they still will eat the back, the, the, the back part of the animal, as long as it's very, very, very carefully removed. 
Now, why are those the best steaks? Because we can't have them. <laughs> Isn't that how it always works? We have the filet minion. We have the filet, filet minute? The f- what? Minion. Minion. Got it, got it. <laughs> or we have the filet minute steak. <laughs> Not exactly the filet mignon. Or like I said, we have the filet mignon. Now, at one time there was, uh, if you guys remember Farmer Jack's, right? Remember Farmer Farmer Jack's, the one that was on Coolidge and Ten Mile. Oh, what a great place. They had a kosher butcher in the installed. And I used to schmooze with him a lot. He was a very knowledgeable man in terms of knowing, I mean, the guy who was working there on the counter, they had a mashkiach all the time and all that, but one of the guys working behind the counter was a very friendly, non-Jewish guy, but he was, he'd been working with meats for years. So one day I said to him, I said, like, what, what is the difference between a porter, porterhouse and a rib steak, for example? You know, like, we have rib, we, we, the rib, we have strip steak, we have chuck steak, which is not really a chuck, and not really a steak, whatever. Anyway, you know how it goes with cuts of meat. But... I said to him, explain to me, why, why is, are these meats prized over the other cuts? And he said, it's very simple. I don't know if you know this, but all flavor in food comes from the fats, right? That's why, if you want to understand, like, what a travesty. I wrote about this in a Shabbos email recently. Many years ago in the 60s, there was a rising concern for the nutritional health of America. And people realized we were eating way too much sugar and it was damaging us. And there started to be a national outcry against sugar. So what did the sugar industry do? And by the way, you could absolutely just Google the words sugar industry, Harvard, false. That's all you got to Google. And you will find all this information. So the sugar industry, they had like a lobbying group, they had an industry, like an industry council, and they literally reached out to some of the top scientists at Harvard, and they said, we need you guys to publish some, uh, some scientific data that shows that sugar isn't the problem. We need you to deflect all this negative attention that we're getting. And they literally did. One of them was the head. I don't have the exact names over here, but I literally wrote this in a Shabbos email a few weeks ago. So you can ask me for it. I'll email it to you. My email address is lburnham at partnersdetroit.org. Burn ham. It's actually pronounced Burnham, but that's how you spell it. It's easy. Burn and ham. Okay, fine. L. Burn ham at partnersdetroit.org. If you'd like, I will send you the article. It is unbelievable what Harvard did. And they literally came out. And one of them was the head of the nutrition department at Harvard. And they came out with this absolutely false data saying that sugar is not the problem. The problem is fat and meat. And they started demonizing meat and fat and ignoring sugar. And we got to a place where when you start taking, the flavor of food comes from the fat. When you start removing the fat from products, you see fat-free this, fat-free that. Check the sugar content. Check the salt content. Because when you remove the fat from foods, the only way you get the flavor up is by, you ha- it's like, you know, you, you, have to have one of the, you have to have two out of the three or at least one out of the three. So you start increasing the sugar and increasing the salt, and it makes it flavorful, even though there's no fat, where it could be much more flavorful if you just left the fat in. I'm not saying you should just eat, like, fat. I, I know a guy who was, like, one of these worker-out bros, you know, uh, you know, gym dudes, and he came to our program, and he was literally, every morning, this guy was ripped, you know, he was obviously working out a lot. He would take, he had this Kerrygold butter from Ireland or something, and every morning he would, like, take a scoop of butter and just drop it into his coffee. Ah, you know, whatever. So there are people who are like, you should be eating more animal fats. I'm not here to say that, but I can tell you this much. Fat is what gives flavor. Now the fat at the front of the cow and the fat at the back of the cow is different on a molecular level. How do you know this? This is all being explained to me by the butcher at Farmer Jack. He said, if you take the fat from the back of the cow and you just put it in your hand and close your hand, the fat will dissolve. It will become liquid. It breaks down and melts out at a much lower temperature. Whereas if you take the fat from the front of a cow, you just take a, take a, a piece of fat out of a rib steak and just hold it in your hands, your hand will get very greasy, but the fat will remain. So it won't render out, so to speak. It won't become more liquidous. So there's, there's an actual molecular difference in the food between the front of the cow and the back of the cow. Interestingly, I mean, amazingly, this is already talked about by the rabbis. 
Let me see who was it who writes specifically that the back of the cow is a very good. Here we go. In the Tosfos HaShalem, okay, in the Tosfos, which was written by the, the Tosfos, the same for Tosfos HaShalem, which was written by early commentators, like in the 1200s. So he writes, Therefore the Jews will not eat the Gid Hanasha, this ma- major sinew network, to remember the miracle that the Jacob faced down an angel and came out alive and not dead. And he was only able to harm him. So it's almost like it's a, a remember it's it's like a good thing. Right? We're gonna see other opinions that say it's it's like a negative thing, but according to this opinion, it's saying it's kind of like a good thing. It's it's a way to say we want to remember fondly that our ancestor faced down an angel and he was the one he walked away. He may have walked away limping, but he walked away from a fight with an angel. What a nace, what a miracle. Um, now, he does also say, though, in the same breath, he says, this, we, don't, we don't eat it to remember this, this incredible miracle, this exper- incredible experience, but also, he says, it was a punishment for the, for the Shvatim, the 12 tribes. Well, at that point, there was not 12 tribes. There was only 11 tribes. Benjamin had not yet been born. But it was also a punishment for the 11 tribes for leaving their father alone. How did your father get, go anywhere? You're preparing for battle. There's a very heightened state of awa- awareness. You are at a code red. Or, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're at DEFCON 5. How do you let your father go anywhere alone? Because they left him alone and they didn't stay with him. They were punished and they're not allowed to eat the Gedanasha. It's a very good piece. And the haunches are the best part of the animal. As it says in the Pusuk, in the verse in Ezekiel 24, all good portions, the, high, the uh, hip and the shoulder. So we see here that the hip is considered one of the best pieces. So he actually points out, again, this is the Bali Tosvos writing this, 800 years ago, we're saying already, they already knew. They didn't know the molecular science of the various fats of the sirloin steak versus the strip steak or versus the uh, Delmonico, but they already knew. They said, like, look, this is, this is the good meat. The T-bone, the porterhouse, the filet, the filet mignon. So part of it is, there's two messages here. Number one, there's the message of it was a punishment. How could you leave your father behind at a time when everyone was on high alert? That was a mistake that the brothers made, and therefore there's somewhat of a punishment here. But on the other hand, there's also an incredible remembrance that says, we fought with an angel, and we came out. Limping, but we came out. Interestingly enough, it's very fascinating. God did not tell them, you shall not eat the Gidhanasha. If you look at the verse, I read it over here. It says, Al-Kain lo yochlu b'nei Yisrael's Gidhanasha. Therefore the sons of Israel, right, Israel was the name that Jacob got from the angel. Therefore, the, the sons of Israel do not eat the Gidanasha until this very day. It doesn't say, therefore, God told them you shall not eat the Gidanasha. It's, therefore, the Jewish people do not eat the Gidanasha. And the Sefer HaChassidim says that the Torah did not make this prohibition. It was a prohibition we accepted upon ourselves as a, so to speak, a penance for we, they said to themselves, They said, since we were guilty for this evening, we left our older, elderly father behind by himself. Therefore, he ended up with a dislocated hip socket because of us. Therefore, they accepted upon themselves to not eat the Gid Hanasha. No T-bone, no sirloin, no porterhouse. And no filet mignon. <laughs> However, I want to point out another important point. I want to go to what the Sefer HaChinuch says. The Sefer HaChinuch was an anonymous work written in the 1100s that goes through all the mitzvos, all 613, and it goes through them in the order of the parshios. So each parsha that we read, you can see which mitzvos are in that parsha. And for each mitzvah, it explains the reason, it explains who it applies to, where it applies. It gives like a, it really is an amazing, amazing work, uh, again, written anonymously, 
fam- there's a famous work on it called the Minchas Chinuch, which is, we know who the author of that was, but the Sefer HaChinuch was written, and he goes through each and every mitzvah, and here's what he says. Tam mitzvahs iser gira Sorry, misharshe mitzvah zu. From the roots of this mitzvah is Kadeshatiya remez li Yisrael. There should be a, hint, a, a reminder, a hint to the Jewish people. Even though they are going to suffer terrible sufferings throughout their exiles, from all the nations and from the children of Esav, let them, they should know that they should be confident that they will not be wiped out. Forever. Their children and their name will go forth. And one day a Redeemer will come and redeem them from all suffering. And by the fact that we remember, every time we go to the butcher store and we see that there is no porterhouse, T-bone, sirloin, filet mignon, this should help them stand with their faith and their righteousness forever. Then he continues, the angel that Yaakov fought with, according to Kabbalah, was the angel of Esav. And he really wanted to destroy Yaakov altogether from the world, him and his children. And he could not overcome him. So what did he do? He hit him and he pained him and suffered by, by knocking out his hip socket. And so too, for all of history, the children of Esav are going to come and they're going to make all kinds of problems for the children of Yaakov. But in the end, we will have the salvation, just like we found by our great-great-grandfather Yaakov, who the sun came out and and shone on him, and healed him, and helped him out from his pain, so too, Cain Yizrach Lanu HaShemesh, so too, this sun will shine for us, the Shemesh of Mashiach, the Shemesh of the, the, the sun shining of the Messiah, that will break through all the darkness and gloominess of this world, V'yirapenu mitzarenu v'yigalenu, and it will heal us from all of our suffering, and it will save us. Amen, b'mehera v'yamenu, amen. So here we go. We look at the Parsha. We see so much suffering. We see so much pain in Eretz Yisrael. We see tortured victims being traded back for murderers or attempted murderers. It's so difficult, but we remember. Every time we go to the butcher shop, (laughs) and no sirloin, and no T-bone, T-bone, and no porterhouse, and no filet mignon, we remember. No pork bellies either, but that's a temporary situation. God willing, Mashiach will come one day, and we will once again, we will be healed of all of our limping. We will be healed of all the pain they tried to inflict on us, and we will sit down together, and I'll invite you over for a barbecue, God willing, and we'll have T-bone, and we'll have porterhouse, and we'll have sirloin, and we will have filet mignon. Okay, that's idea number one I want to share with you. I want to share another idea with you, and this is this is said over. I don't remember where I heard it, but I heard it years ago, and it always stuck with me. And it also is something that will help us understand a little bit just the the insanity of the world we're looking at. Everywhere you look in the world, the people who are protesting. I mean, obviously, Hamas and all those people are just, they're just savages. They're monsters. Even all over the world, all the protesters who are protesting with, in support of the, of the Palestinians and the, from, river to sea, the, 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 from river to sea Nazis, all those people, they're so destructive. They're so violent. We all saw what happened when 300,000 Jews got together in Washington. They marched, and they were beautiful, and they were respectful. Someone asked a policeman, how, how, how's it going over here today? And the policeman said, I've received a lifetime worth of thank yous in one day here. Everyone was so respectful and thankful and appreciative. There was singing, and there was beauty, and there was joy, and there was hope, and there was courage. And then you look all over the world, 
And wherever people are protesting for the monsters, they're acting like monsters. They're attacking police. They're spray-painting graffiti all over the place. They're spray-painting on national monuments. They're looting and they're burning and they're destroying and smashing glass. They're thugs and hooligans. And yet the world seems to still be not getting it. In this week's Torah portion, there's a horrific story. After the story between Yaakov and Esav, which again, Yaakov defeats the angel of Esav, and then the next day, when Esav himself comes to meet Yaakov, miraculously, there's some sort of, some level of reconciliation. After that, Yaakov comes to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and he buys a parcel of land. You've got to love it how the Torah always points out. Like, we were buying real estate there. We bought it years ago, right? <laughs> the cave of the patriarchs, Avram has clearly bought it over there. And the Torah, in each time, even now, it mentions the denominations. He bought the parcel of land over here outside of Shechem for a hundred kesita. That's what he bought it for. We know that we recorded those transactions. They're like on the blockchain. They're here forever and ever and ever. Right? The Torah records this. It wants you to know, this was bought for this amount in this place. And then Dina, the daughter of Yaakov, goes out. And Shechem, who's the crown prince, the son of Hamor, the Chivi, there's a, there was a, a, a nation there known as the Chivi, he comes out here and he sees this beautiful Jewish girl and he abducts her and he violates her. And then they come and they try to offer up some sort of, let's have a conversation here. Sound familiar? Yeah, sound familiar. And they have a conversation with Yaakov. Right now, Yaakov is just a small family, and the Chivites, they've got an entire city. And they've got Dina abducted. Dina is abducted. And they come out and they say, let's, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. Give us our daughter back. Then we'll talk. But no, let's make a deal. That's how these sick people are always. We're not going to give you your people back. Let's make a deal. So we see what happens. Shimon and Levi speak up. They're two of the tribes. And they speak up. And they say, okay, you want to make a deal? Let's make a deal. You guys, you want to be like, you want to hang out with us, you want to share, we'll marry your daughters, you'll marry our daughters, no problem. We'll do business together, it'll be great. One condition. You all need to get circumcised. That's what we're into circumcision. That's something we do. That's part of our identity. If you want to marry into us, if you want to live with peace, we'll let you, well, whatever you want, you all got to circumcise. Now, if you want to imagine, by the way, how beloved Shechem, the crown prince, and Hamor, his father, were, they were obviously incredibly beloved to the Chivites because they came back and said, guys, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's make a, a, a treaty with these Jews and we're all going to get circumcised. And they did. On the third day after the circumcision, which I don't remember from mine, but it's the most painful day. On the third day after the circumcision, Shimon and Levi gird their swords. They strap up and they go into the city and they go to get their daughter, their their sister freed. And there's a massive battle. Again, there's a lot of commentary, but they end up killing every single male in the city. The males all, according to some commentaries, the males, they were protecting. They at first came, according to, again, there's different opinions on how you learn this. There's actually so much, I think one year I did a class where I just went through like five or six or eight different opinions, how you understand this. But let's go with this most simple one. The rest of the Chivites were unwilling to give up Dina and give her back, and they were protecting their murderous violating, woman-violating prince, and they were protecting and not willing, they were protecting the castle, so to speak, and Shimon's like, Shimon and Levi were like, either you give us our daughter or we're, we're not, we'll go right through you. And they did. Now many of the commentators ask, like, what's this whole deal with you have to get circumcised? Even with circumcisions, the force they were facing was far greater than two people. 
even though they were in pain. It was it, the odds were way stacked against them anyway. It's not like they, they could say, well, they won only because people were in pain. Clearly, they had some sort of divine help in order to fight off two men against an entire city. So one of the opinions they say is, later on when Yaakov hears that they did this, he says, what's going to happen now? All the, the whole neighborhood is going to come, and, meaning the whole Israel, all the, all the kings, they're going to hear that we wiped out a whole city. They're going to come against us. They're going to team up against us. And they're going to come and wipe us out. Yaakov is, is concerned about this. So Shimon and Levi, that was part of their plan. The first step is you get them all to circumcise, which is part of the process. It's a conversion. The spilling of, of Jewish blood nobody cares about. Their whole idea was make them into like Jews, or Jews light, by getting their circumcision, and then you can kill off an entire city and the world doesn't care. The world doesn't care about spilled Jewish blood. They could have come into our cities. They could have done the most horrific, heinous acts, like most barbaric, savage acts. Murdered 1,400 people. Kidnapped, raped, tortured, violated. The most horrible things. I can't even say them out loud. But they were Jews, right? Okay, yes, we don't care about them. Cease fire now! I support Hamas! I support the Palestinians! Some things don't change. When Jews are being killed, nobody cares. We got to wipe out a city, let's make them Jews first, and then we can take out the whole city, and no one's going to blink. So that was their idea. They said, let's make you into Jews first. You want to? Let's convert you. Make you into Jews first, then we can kill a whole city, and nobody cares. Some things never change. Okay. Now that's a little heavy, right? Let's go to something beautiful. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I will give you the secret to eternal happiness. Okay? It's not going to come from porterhouse or T-bone or sirloin or filet mignon. And let me give you guys eternal happiness. In the showdown, so Yaakov, again, he meets Esav. And surprisingly, even though Esav came with the express intent to kill Yaakov, what ends up happening? He comes, he runs at him, and he gives him a hug and a kiss. To read it inside. And Yaakov lifts up his eyes, and behold, he sees there's Esav coming, and with him are 400 men. And he splits his camps, and he has them come out with the wives. Um, and Esav runs to his brother, and he hugs him, and he falls on his neck, and he kisses him, and they wept. So then they have a whole conversation. Who, who are these people? And he says, "These are the kid, you know." Yaakov says, these, "These are the children that Hashem has given me." And they all come up and they sort of introduce themselves. So Esav had been given a tremendous gift by Yaakov. Yaakov had sent him before meeting him hundreds of animals, camels and 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 uh, sheep and and uh, and cows and babies and calves. So, Esav says the following statement. Vayomer Esav, yeshli rav. He says, I've got a lot. Achi, my brother, yilach asherlach. You can keep what's, you keep what's yours. I've got plenty. So Yaakov says, no, no, no. Vayomer Yaakov, please, I beg you. If I found favor in your eyes, take the gift that I've given you. Because seeing you is like seeing the face of the divine being, and you were appeased by me. It's kind of hinting to him, by the way, last night I fought off your angel, I fought off a divine being. Just, just know, by the way, I've, I've got the power. I've got the power. Okay, fine. Anyway, uh-huh. he says, He says, Please take the blessing that I sent to you. Ki chanani elokim, for the Lord has been gracious with me. V'chi yeshli kol, and I have everything. Ba'yivzer bo ba'yikach, and he pestered him. He said, come on, please take it, take it. And he said, okay, fine, I'll take it. The sages point out the difference between Yaakov's language and Esav's language. 
Esav's language is, I have a lot. Yaakov's language is, I have everything. What's the difference? I have a lot is great, but I still want more. There was a guy, Craig, <laughs> Dr. Craig something, the inventor of Netscape. Okay? We can look him up later, but his first name was Craig. And frankly, if I told you his last name, it wouldn't make a difference anyway. He made a lot of money. He, he created a company after company. He was a serial entrepreneur. And at one point, they interviewed him, and he was an early in his career, and they said, like, what's your number? How much do you need to be able to retire and just be happy? He said, 10 million. Okay. He sold the company. He made more than 10 million. They said, you're still working. What's your number? He said, 100 million. Okay. He sold another company. He made 100 million. They said, you're still working. What's your number? He said, a billion. I said, okay. He made a billion dollars. And he was still working 80, 90 hours a week. They said, what's your number? He said, I want to be richer than Larry Ellison. Or Larry Ellison, I believe, was the founder of Oracle. And at that point, Larry Ellison was worth $13 billion. This is the attitude of, I have a lot. I have a lot, I do. I have 10 million, I have 100 million, I have a billion. But I ain't done yet. I need more. I need more and more and more. And by the way, the same guy, this is Dr. Craig, he also went through four wives. The same mentality, the person who's never happy with what he has. Right? Went through four wives. So this is the attitude of the ace of. He's just never happy, ever, with what he has. He has a lot, but not done yet. I just need a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And then I just need a little bit more than Larry Ellison. That, that's where you end up being. That's the mindset. The mindset of Yaakov, I got everything. I am golden. I have everything. And that is the source, that is the secret to happiness. So I want to talk to you. There's a safer called Likra Shabbos Malkasa. And it has in it different stories about different righteous people. We'll take a certain person and we'll talk about a little bit of different stories about his life and how he was a master at teaching a particular trait. There was a, a tzaddik, Rabbi Zalman Brizel, who was a uh, famous, beloved, beloved rabbi in Yerushalayim. And he taught what it means to be happy, to walk around with the feeling all the time of, I've got everything. He used to always say, he used to always say that the character trait of happiness is the most important foundation in any Jewish home. You want a successful home? Make sure it's a happy home. He said, when you go into your home, you need to see, you need to see to it that even the walls are dancing from joy. You walk into your home, I don't care what happened that day at work. I don't care if the client just called up and canceled the order that you expected. It was about to go out, and that was your payroll, and they, and they just and they just canceled, and you were on the phone with them on the way home, and you just walked in the door. Doesn't make a difference. Your kids, they got to see the joyful face. You got to come in with such joy that the walls are dancing. And indeed, he excelled at it every single day. He would walk into his, mor- into his house in the morning after davening, and he would yell out, Good morning! <laughs> Good morning, everybody! And every day he would say it with all the energy in the world, as if he just, like, won the, as if he just won uh, the lottery. Constantly, constantly, he would be, his mouth would be filled with gratitude and thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and he said, he used to say, at any moment I could just get up and dance. I've got so many blessings that are filling my life right now. And indeed, there were times where he literally would do that. At the end of davening, he was an old man bent over with a cane. And he would get up and he would start dancing with his cane up and down, up and down, singing. Thanking Takarish Baruch Hu that he lived so long for another day. I get to keep the mitzvah of tzitzis and I get to keep the mitzvah of tefillin and I get to daven and I get to say brachos and he would dance with joy. 
Now, fascinatingly, he wasn't dancing with joy because he heard some kind of miracle. It was from the littlest things that I get to live, and I get to say brachos, and I get to put on tefillin, and I get to say the Shema. He would dance with joy over these things. He said, look, I, I, I got to daven this morning. I put on tefillin. How could I not be happy? How could I not be happy? I put on my own shirt. I buttoned it with these super cool tools that we have called fingers with the opposable thumbs. And for that time that you have that very difficult button to get unbuttoned or buttoned, you've got these little tools at the end of your fingers called nails. How awesome are nails? <laughs> They're like literally God's like, it's like a Leatherman tool. You know, you have like that, people have those Leatherman like, you know, knives. It's got a utility knife. It's got like 18 different things. Your fingernails are insanely well designed to allow you to do so many things. How would you take the sticker off the back of a book without a finger? Huh? Right? Think about that. How do you open up the cottage cheese container? There you go. How do you open up the cottage cheese container with no thumbs? Sorry, with no nails. One time, listen to this unbelievable story. One time, he was in his wheelchair. And he was already an older person, and someone was helping him down the steps with his wheelchair, and somehow the wheelchair slipped out of their hand. And he went tumbling down the steps with his wheelchair. And as soon as he finished falling, and he had certainly broken his hand, and he was in incredible pain, but what did he say? He said, I want you to know that I believe that all the way from the six days of creation... It was decreed upon me that Zalman Brizel would fall down on this day, down the stairs, with a wheelchair. And this was decreed from the Sheshes Yemei Barashas. And there was nothing that any of you could have done to stop it. So don't you dare feel guilty. And he says, look, I only broke my hand. I could have broken my head. Can you, ima- can you imagine... Now, by the way, the only way you get... And he actually he even quoted... There's a Gemara, by the way. There's a Gemara that says, Ki fell me meno. The, the Torah says, it's talking about someone falling off a roof. And it says, you have to make sure to put up a roof on your, on your dwellings. I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a mitzvah. One of the mitzvahs in the Torah is to put a roof around... Uh, a fence around your roof. That's right. Put a fence around your roof. I also recommend putting fences around your yard. Good fences make good neighbors, but that's not what I'm talking about over here. I'm talking about putting a fence on your roof. It's actually a mitzvah in the Torah. But the Torah there says, Because otherwise, a person's going to fall down. But the language is, Lest he fall, the, the faller. What does that mean, the faller? The Gemara says, This person was supposed to fall anyway. If a person falls off the roof, It's because they they were slated to fall off the roof from the beginning of time. And Rashi explains, as it says, Hashem calls the playbook for all the generations from the beginning of time. That Hashem was already clear and known from the beginning of time, all the generations and what they would do and even the tragedies that would befall them. Now here is a man who just fell down the steps with a wheelchair falling after him. And he's lying on the floor with a broken hand. And he's busy saying, don't you worry about it, it's fine. I could have broken my head, it could have been much worse. I could have broken my head. And by the way, don't feel guilty, because this was going to happen to me. God already had it in my books. When I was born, there was a book called Zalman Brizel, and it said, on this exact date... On June 4th, no, on Yud Dalid Cheshvan, whatever it is, Tafshin blank blank, Zalman Brizel at 9.43 a.m. is going to fall down the steps with a wheelchair. So how do you um, reconcile that with free choice? Like, in other words, like, we're dominant where people will get better. So, okay, so that's a good question. The free choice is not about, free choice is for moral choices only. Right, meaning free choice is only... It's, you have free will to make proper moral choices. Your proper moral choice is to do your best at taking your grandfather down the steps. Right. And you did the right thing. If, if someone had dobbin that he would 
like like maybe it's a punishment for something he did. That that that's first of all like this meaning then God already knew ahead of time. That's this is a, I don't want to get into the general question of it's called Yedia versus Bechira. It's an incredible question, by the way. And the Rambam says that it's the most incomprehensible question of all, right? The question of Yedia Bechira means how could I have free will if God already knows the result? But I'm not. I don't want to get into that answer right now. But I'll I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a of a hint. Some of you may know the Lions have been playing decently this season. Hmm. Yeah, I know, right? Quite surprising. As a matter of fact, they haven't had a, a record this good in the, since like the 1960s. So imagine, if you will, if you wish, that the Lions made it into the Super Bowl. I know, for people like Rabbi, we don't deal with miracles over here. <laughs> but imagine, just imagine, the Lions made it into the Super Bowl. And as would likely happen if the Lions did make it into the Super Bowl, they would be up by three points with four seconds left. And then Jared Goff would throw an interception, a pick six, and the guy would catch it and run from one end to the other end and score six points and end the Super Bowl and we would lose it. That's likely if we ever made it into the Super Bowl. That would be likely what happened. Now imagine that you, you see the game and you watch the game. You're like, oh, okay, fine. The next day, you're watching the replay. Right? The ball snapped. Jared Goff falls back. He's looking right. He's looking left. There's an open receiver over there. There's an open receiver over there. And now you know, because you already watched this game, that he's going to throw to the left. And it's going to get intercepted. So you're screaming at the, at the television screen. You're screaming, hey, hey, throw right. Throw right. Don't throw left. And he throws to the left. Okay, I didn't yell loud enough. Let me try that again. <laughs> you rewind. You rewind the game. You go back. They snap the ball. Jared Goff goes back. And you're yelling, no, don't go left. Once again, what does he do? He goes right. The ball gets intercepted. They run all the way down, and they lose the Super Bowl. Okay, I'm going to try one more time. You try it again and again. No, no, no matter how many times, it doesn't change anything. Now, when Jared Goff was standing there looking right and looking left, and he had a receiver here and a receiver here, did he have free will? He did. But when you watch the game, does he have free will? No, because the game already happened. Right? So basically, you're able to watch the game after it happened, and you're able to say, no, Jared, don't do that! It's too late. It already happened. So Jared, at the moment of playing the game, had free will. Now when you're re-watching it, he doesn't have free will, but you know exactly what's going to happen. You're like a little bit like God, because you're like, I know what's going to happen. He's going to throw it to the left, and he's going to get intercepted. I know. I'm God. I'm up here. I'm watching it happen. I wish I could stop him, but alas, my child's going to make the mistake again and again and again and again. God gets to watch the game on Saturday, on Shabbos Kodesh. <laughs> I can't even use this analogy anymore. But I'm saying the point is that God gets to watch the game before it happens, because God has no time. So in, in God's world, time is all circular. He can watch the future before it happens, the same way he can look back at everything in the past. God's knowledge is all encompassing, not just that he knows everything, but he knows everything that will happen, happened, or will happen, happened already, or is happening right now. God's knowledge is total. So therefore, God is able to watch the game, so to speak. And even though Jared Goff has free will to go right or go left, God happens to have seen the game already. He knows what's going to happen. Now, that's hard to comprehend because, like, how could you watch the game the day before? Well, I'll just tell you one cool thing, actually, and then we'll just talk more about being happy, and then we'll call it a day. Just happy and knowledgeable of the reality of the world. God, His knowledge is called makif, which means it's all encompassing, like a circle. Our knowledge is sequential, which means we only know about things as they happen, and the timeline keeps trundling along. So you can always look back and know what happened backwards, but you can't know forward. So you're on a line of knowledge. God is on a circle of knowledge. The Vilna Gon points out that the ultimate unknowable number in the world, what's the ultimate unknowable number in the world? The ultimate no, infinity drive. What? Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Pi, maybe. Pi, there you go. The ultimate unknowable number in the world is pi. There are computers that have been calculating 
billions and billions of numbers of pi, and it's a never-ending sequence. It's not, it's not a sequence, meaning it's a never-ending number. It doesn't, it doesn't go into a sequence. It's, just, it's an unknowable number. You can have the best supercomputers crunching that number forever and forever, and they have been for years. Pi has no end to it. It's infinite number. What is pi? Pi is the relationship between a diameter, sorry, a diameter and the circumference of a circle. Pi is the relationship between circular knowledge of God and the linear knowledge of us, and it's irreconcilable. We can never understand it. We can never fathom the bottom of it. So the Vilna Gom points out the, the ultimate unknowable number is trying to square to put a circle in relationship to a, a straight line. We are the straight line. We see things sequentially. God sees things makif. We can't comprehend it. But that's I'm giving you a short understanding. So that's kind of how it is. So Rabbi Brizel said back to the Rabbi Brizel. He's like. Don't you worry, guys. It was written on my book already. I'm going to fall down. Now, this applies to every one of us. How happy you are in life is truly in your hands. You have the ability to be besimcha tamid, always happy, if you walk around with the attitude of yesh li kol. I have everything. Bar Hashem. I'm so blessed. I have clothing. I have fingers and ears and eyes. I'm so incredibly blessed. And the more you walk around, the more you say that. The more you describe your blessings. Stop before dinner. I know you're going to make brachos. I hope you're going to make brachos before you eat your food. But also, stop during dinner and say, look at how amazing this is. We have this delicious food. And we have some cut up vegetables and some cut up fruit. Constantly verbalize the incredible blessings in your life. And you'll be filled with happiness. It's that simple. Yaakov gave us the pathway. You want eternal happiness? Walk around with Yeshli Kol. Walk around with the sense of Baruch Hashem. I have everything. And Yaakov was injured right before then. He clearly didn't have everything, but he had the attitude of everythingness. And the attitude of everythingness and the calling out of that all the time, speaking out how amazing your life is, how much you have will give you eternal happiness. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.